Section 70 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Denham. Chapter 18. The Church and Reform by R. V. Lawrence. Part 4. While affairs were thus proceeding in the council, the emperor was obtaining a series of successes in Germany which alarmed the pope. Paul III had no desire to see Charles too powerful, and was afraid that he might come in person to Italy and insist on far-reaching reforms. He therefore determined to authorise the legates to transfer the council to Bologna. The translation was not, however, to be carried out on the sole authority of the legates, but they were to endeavour to obtain a vote of the council approving of it. A convenient pretext was found in the fact that there had been a few cases of plague in Trent, and on the ground that the health of the fathers was endangered, at the eighth public session, March 11, 1547, the council, by thirty-eight votes to fourteen, with four abstentions, decided to adjourn to Bologna. Cardinal Pacheco and the Spanish bishops, however, remained at Trent and awaited the emperor's orders. Charles was exceedingly angry when he heard the news. He refused in any way to recognise the translation of the council, and the Spanish bishops were prohibited from quitting Trent on any pretext whatsoever. They were, however, to refrain from any conciliar act which might provoke a schism. The course of European politics during the next two years has been narrated elsewhere. Charles remained firm. His political difficulties did not diminish, but the mission of Cardinal Sfondrato did not move him, and Paul III was disappointed of his hopes from France. The Diet of Augsburg recognised the prelates at Trent as the true council, and the emperor attempted to settle the religious affairs of the nation by the interim until a general council acceptable to him should meet. Nothing remained for Paul III but to bow to the inevitable, and on September 17, 1549, he formally suspended the Council of Bologna. The Pope made a show of himself undertaking the reform of the Church, and appointed a commission of cardinals for the purpose, but before his real intentions in the matter could become clear, he died, November 10, 1549. The Cardinal Del Monte came out of the conclave as Julius III on February 7, 1550. Reginald Pole was nearly elected, but Carafa reminded the conclave of his Lutheran tendencies at the council, and succeeded in turning the scale against him. Cervini was the candidate of the party of reaction, but the imperialists regarded him as their most dangerous enemy at Trent, and secured his exclusion. Del Monte, though he had not been less hostile to the interests of the emperor, might be gained over, and events justified to some extent their anticipations. 
the new pope was utterly selfish. He only desired to enjoy the papacy in peace, and he was quite willing to acquiesce in the emperor's wishes, so far as they did not entail any loss of power to the Holy See. He at once agreed to the return of the council to Trent, and on November 14, 1550, published a bull summoning it to meet on May 1, 1551. In return for a guarantee from the Emperor that the papal authority should remain intact, he even consented to leave it an open question whether the preceding decisions of the Council were binding, and to grant the Lutherans a hearing. The new pontificate seemed to be opening under the most favourable auspices. Reform was again entered upon at Rome. A commission of six cardinals was appointed to consider the conditions of appointment to benefices, and another commission to reform the procedure of conclaves. Difficulties, however, soon arose. Henry II of France wished the Pope to join a league against the Emperor, and when he declined, refused to recognise the coming council. The German bishops, and still more the Protestants, despaired of any good result from another papal assembly, and showed no eagerness to attend. The Spaniards likewise were reluctant to take a long journey which would probably be fruitless. Only some forty prelates were present at Trent when the council was reopened on May 1, 1551. Cardinal Marcello Crescentio, together with two bishops, Pigino, Archbishop of Siponto, and Lipomano, Bishop of Verona, were the papal representatives. The two bishops, with the title of nuncios, were to assist Crescentio, who alone exercised the legatine authority. The choice of presidents did not augur well for the success of the assembly. Crescentio was a blind adherent of the papacy, and obstinate to boot and his assistants were equally attached to the curial party. They well understood that it was their business to proceed further with the emphatic restatement of the old dogma in the interests of the papacy, which had been so successfully begun. The papacy had no more intention of conciliation in doctrine than it had during the sessions held under Paul III. The second meeting at Trent was thus, from the beginning, doomed to failure, so far as the Protestants were concerned, as the first had been. The Emperor and the Pope were no more in real agreement than before. The meagre attendance at the opening left no alternative to the Council but to adjourn. And September 1 was accordingly fixed for the first, twelfth, public session. By that time the electors of Mainz and Trier had arrived, together with a few other German and Spanish bishops. It was agreed to take up the work at the point at which it had been dropped in the previous assembly of the council, and in this manner all its previous decisions were tacitly confirmed. In such circumstances it was little good attempting to persuade the Protestants to send representatives to the council but nevertheless the emperor persevered in the attempt. The doctrine of the Eucharist 
was the first subject entered upon by the council. Lénez and Salmeron, who again appeared in the council as the Pope's theologians, and with a greater influence than ever, strongly opposed any concession to Protestant views in the matter, even in points of discipline, such as communion in both kinds. The Jesuits had a considerable share in drawing up the decrees, and adopted a purely conservative attitude. The German prelates, however, and a few others, advocated strongly a concession with regard to the cup. Finally, at the request of the representative of the Emperor, the matter was deferred until the Protestants should arrive. Meanwhile, the discussion on reform was resumed. The abuse of the right of appeal to the Pope from the Episcopal courts was prohibited, and the procedure of the courts regulated. Decrees to this effect, together with the decisions on the Eucharist, omitting those on communion in both kinds, were promulgated at the thirteenth public session, which was held on October 11, 1551. A safe conduct was also granted to the Protestants who should attend the council, though not until after much negotiation as to its exact wording. The legate began now to grow anxious as to the course affairs would take on the arrival of the Protestants, and try to hasten the deliberations of the council. At the general congregation on November 5, Crescentio proposed that the fathers, in order to save time, should simply accept or reject the articles that the theologians had prepared. The proposal was, however, rejected by a bare majority. As the two Jesuits were now the most influential among the theologians, the success of the legate's proposal would have meant that they would have practically dictated the decrees of the council. The sacraments of penance and of extreme unction were next discussed, together with thirteen further decrees on reform. Many minor grievances were removed, but burning questions were skilfully avoided. The conclusions arrived at were promulgated at the 14th public session, held on November 25, 1551. At length, in January 1552, some Protestant delegates arrived in Trent, representing the Duke of Württemberg, the Elector Maurice of Saxony, and a few of the South German towns. The legate opposed their admission to the public congregation unless they first accepted all the conclusions of the council, but the representatives of the emperor finally overcame the opposition of the legate, and the delegates were allowed to address the general congregation on January 24, 1552. The only result was to reveal how wide was the gulf between the council and the Protestants. Nevertheless, at the fifteenth public session, on January 25, 1552, it was decided to adjourn the next public session, until March 19, 1552, in order to enable other Protestants to arrive, and another and more explicit safe conduct was granted to them. The theological discussions, meanwhile, continued, but nothing was done. It was obvious that the situation was hopeless. 
In February many of the bishops departed. In March the Protestant delegates also left, and finally, on the news of the rapid advance of Maurice of Saxony, the council was suspended on April 28, 1552. The Peace of Passau, 1552, and its confirmation at the Diet of Augsburg, 1555, marked the failure of the Emperor's policy. The unity of the Church was definitely broken. The two confessions were compelled to tolerate one another in their respective spheres, and all attempts at conciliation and compromise were abandoned. So far as the papacy was concerned, the council passed away as a bad dream. Julius III determined to risk no more experiments, and the remainder of his pontificate was spent in beautifying his villa near the Porta del Popolo, the Villa di Papa Giulio, which is his chief memorial. On his death, on March 24, 1555, Cervini at last ascended the papal throne as Marcellus II. He was the first true pope of the Counter-Reformation, of blameless life and untarnished orthodoxy, and zealous for reform. A friend of the Jesuits, he was at the same time tactful and diplomatic, and he well understood the maxim that on occasions more prudence and less piety was better than more piety and less prudence. But Marcellus II only survived his election three weeks, and was succeeded by the uncompromising Carafa, who took the title of Paul IV. The Counter-Reformation was now master. The new reign began in earnest with reform. The papacy itself would purify the church, and needed no counsel to assist it. A bull was published announcing that the first care of the new pontiff would be the reform of the universal church and of the Roman court. Congregations were appointed to carry out this announcement. Edict after edict was issued for the reform of convents, and the whole method of appointment to clerical officers was overhauled. But what no one could have anticipated happened. Reform and the Catholic reaction were sacrificed to what Paul the Fourth thought were the political interests of the Holy See. He had ever been a hater of Spain, and he now made it his object to free the papacy from its thraldom. His unworthy nephews attained an ascendancy over him by playing upon the anti-Spanish mania of the old man. The purification of the Church sank into the background. But the failure of his nephews to achieve the object dearest to his heart opened his eyes towards the end of the year 1558, and when Cardinal Pacheco had the courage at the session of the Inquisition on January 9, 1559, to reply to Paul's excited cries of, Reform! Reform! Holy Father, reform must first of all begin among ourselves. The Pope was convicted of sin. His nephews were banished, and reform of the whole administration in church and state was again begun. A large remission of taxation had marked Paul's accession. 
and the burdens of the people were now still further lightened. The dataria, on which all the schemes of reform under Paul III had been shattered, was taken in hand once more, and with a considerable measure of success. The removal of vexatious taxation, and of the toll on good works, was pressed forward. At the beginning of the reign Ignatius and Lainez had been consulted, and Paul the Fourth realised from the example of their society that freedom of spiritual services was the road to success. He saw that the whole system of fees levied on every possible occasion was utterly bad. Marriage dispensations, a very profitable source of revenue, he would have none of. Officials must not live by court fees, nor should their offices be bought and sold, or performed by a deputy who had to make his own profit. In short, the object of Paul's reforms was to substitute direct for indirect taxation. The levying of tenths was approved, and the people were to be taught that it was their duty to give directly towards the support of the Holy See. At the same time, Paul IV recognised that too many of the rights of the bishops had been absorbed by Rome, and in this way many of his reforms anticipated the ordinances made later in the last sessions of the Council of Trent. An equal zeal for purity of doctrine and for purity of life was shown by the energetic old man. The Inquisition exercised its powers with the utmost vigour, and even cardinals were not spared. Moroni was imprisoned, and the suppression of liberal Catholicism as well as Protestant opinions was now definitely taken in hand. The Inquisition and the Index suppressed the slightest tendency to diverge from medieval theology. The spirit of Ignatius and his society had now taken possession of the church. Paul IV, however, died on August 18, 1559, and an immediate reaction set in in Rome. The severity of his measures had made him many enemies, and even among those in favour of reform there was a considerable number who had no wish that it should be the arbitrary work of the Pope. All the cardinals, accordingly, before entering the conclave, bound themselves to summon anew the general council in the case of their being elected, and on December 26, 1559, Giovanni Angelo de' Medici, Medicino, was elected Pope. He was a Milanese, of middle-class origin, and unconnected with the great Florentine family. Learned and kindly, and of exemplary life, he was better acquainted with the times in which he lived than his predecessor had been. He wished to live at peace with all men, and to win the support of the Catholic monarchs for the Holy See. At the same time, he had no intention of suffering any diminution of the papal prerogative. 
Before his accession he had expressed himself in favour of concessions in discipline, such as the practice of communion in both kinds, and he believed that by this means a council might heal the divisions of the Catholic world without endangering the rights of the Holy See. Events showed that it was not so easy to confine the issues to such narrow lines, but at the opening of his reign Pius the Fourth looked forward to a council with no misgiving. The Emperor Ferdinand and Francis the Second of France greeted with approval the proposals of the Pope to hold a council, but they at once proceeded to name conditions which were received with little favour at Rome. Complete freedom must be given to the council. It must be held in a German town, and it should work above all for the reconciliation of the Protestants. In view of these proposals, Pius IV, chiefly under the influence of his nephew, Carlo Borromeo, Secretary of State, drew back from the idea of a council. The Pope, in his turn, made impossible conditions, and considered the question of carrying out the necessary reforms by means of congregations of cardinals. Events in France, however, compelled the Pope to proceed with the proposed council. The States-General at Orléans, January 10, 1561, ordered the French bishops to meet on January 20, 1561, to prepare for a national council if the announcement which had been made of a general council were not carried out. A papal bull had been issued on November 29, 1560, summoning a council to Trent for April 6, 1561, and Pius hastened to assure the French of the seriousness of his intentions. The French National Synod was accordingly abandoned, and Trent was accepted as the place of meeting. Before the assembly could meet, there was, however, another difficulty to be settled. The emperor and the French government wished for an explicit declaration that the council was a new assembly, and not merely a continuation of the previous sessions at Trent, as Philip II and the Spanish Church insisted. The sympathies of the Pope were with Philip, but it was necessary not to offend the Emperor and the French. Accordingly, the question was left in doubt, and no definite pronouncement was made on the matter. Meanwhile the preparations for the Council went on. The Pope instructed his nuncios to invite all Christian princes to the Council, whether schismatic or not. The Protestant powers, however, had little confidence in the proposed assembly, and it soon became clear that the council would be confined to the nations still in communion with the See of Rome. Ferdinand, however, and the French government had no intention of allowing the council simply to register the wishes of the curia. Both powers wished for concessions which might unite to the Church the moderate Protestants and disaffected Catholics in their dominions. The reforms which they desired are enumerated in the instructions given to the French ambassadors at the Council, and in the libel of Reformation, 
which the emperor caused to be drawn up. The mass in the vulgar tongue, revision of the service-books, communion in both kinds, the marriage of priests, reform of the curia, and a reduction in the number of cardinals, the enforcement of residence on ecclesiastics, the abolition of the whole system of dispensations and exemptions, and the limitation of the power of excommunication, were among the chief points demanded. The whole church system was in fact to be revised, and the share of the papacy in its government to be reduced. Bavaria supported most of these demands, and in fact nearly all Catholics north of the Alps desired a radical reform of the Church. Philip II and the Spanish bishops, on the other hand, wished for no alteration in the ritual and practice of the Church, but they equally desired a thorough reform of the Curia and a diminution of the papal authority. At the same time they wished it to be distinctly declared that the assembly was a continuation of the previous council, and that an effectual bar should be thus provided against any advances towards Protestantism. The Spanish bishops were opposed even more strongly than the papal court to any alteration in the discipline and practice of the church, the division among the Catholic powers gave the papacy a means of which it was quick to avail itself. The history of the third meeting of the Council of Trent is mainly the story of the skilful diplomacy with which the papacy played off one nation against another, and succeeded in bringing all efforts for radical reform to naught. The task was not difficult, as there was little cooperation among the powers, even in the pursuit of objects which they had in common, and the council ended in strengthening rather than weakening the papal grip upon the church. The papacy, supported by the Italian episcopate, defied the Christian world. No less than five legates were appointed to preside over the council. At their head was placed Ercole di Gonzaga, cardinal of Mantua, brother of the duke, a man of conciliatory disposition, and he had for his colleagues Girolamo Serepando, the former general of the Augustinians, who had played a prominent part in the earlier sessions, Luigi Simonetta, and Jacopo Puccio, both of them canonists of renown, and Stanislaus Hosius, who had worked hard against heresy in Poland. The last-named three were firmly devoted to the papal interests. Putio, however, soon fell ill, and his place was taken by Cardinal Marc d'Alton, Bishop of Constance, a young man of little experience. Ludovico Madruzzo, nephew of Cardinal Madruzzo, had succeeded his uncle in the bishopric of Trent, and received the legates on their arrival on April 16, 1561. The bishops, however, arrived but slowly, and summer and autumn went by. At length the Pope could wait no longer, and fixed the first, seventeenth, session for January 18, 1562. There were then assembled for the opening of the council, 
five cardinals, three patriarchs, eleven archbishops, ninety bishops, four generals of orders, and four abbots. The first business undertaken by the council was the question of an index of prohibited books. It was decided to revise the index issued by Paul IV, and a commission of eighteen prelates was appointed for the purpose. A safe conduct was then granted to any Protestants who might come to the council in the same terms as that granted under Julius III, but this was nothing more than a formality, as there was not the least prospect that any would attend. It was, however, necessary to satisfy the emperor so far. Although the numbers present at the opening of the council were greater than they had ever been in any of the earlier sessions at Trent or Bologna, the assembly was purely a gathering of the Catholic world. There was no longer even the possibility, which had existed at an earlier date, of a frank meeting of the Protestants and a consideration of their objections. The papacy had defeated the attempt before, and mutual distrust now made it hopeless. The interest of the third meeting of the Council lies in the effort made by certain elements in Catholicism to readjust the balance of forces in the government of the Church, and to satisfy the needs of Catholics north of the Alps. The cleft between the parties revealed itself at the very beginning of the Council. The legates inserted in the decree concerning the opening of the council, the words proponentibus legatis ac presidentibus. Against this, the Spanish bishops, led by Guerrero, Archbishop of Granada, protested. Its object was to diminish the independent power of the council, apart from the Pope, by taking away its right of initiative. Any proposals hurtful to the papacy and the curia would thus be barred. Philip II, through his ambassadors, supported the objections of the Spanish bishops to the clause. The legates, however, explained the words away, and the opposition had not the courage to bring the matter to the vote. The situation at first was not very promising for the opposition. A little group of Spanish bishops, led by a determined man, the Archbishop of Granada, stood face to face with an overwhelming number of Italian prelates, the great majority of whom were devoted to or dependent upon the curia. A few northern bishops, and a few independent Italians supported them, but they were not certain of the help even of all the Spaniards. Some of these, chief of whom was the Bishop of Salamanca, had already been won over by the curia. Behind the Spanish bishops, however, were the Catholic powers. All alike were determined to maintain the liberty of the council to declare its supremacy over the Pope, and to free the Church from the curial despotism. There was, however, no harmony of action, and a singular lack of cooperation among them, even for the objects which they had in common. Moreover, their efforts were ultimately paralysed by the fact that, while the Emperor and France 
desired the council to start entirely afresh, and to make concessions in church ritual and practice which would meet the needs of their respective countries, Spain, on the other hand, was determined that the council should be considered a continuation of the old, and develop the old dogma and practice on the traditional lines. The skilled intriguers of Icuria found a promising field for their work. The second, eighteenth, public session was held on February 26, 1562. The resolutions with regard to the index and the safe conduct to the Protestant were then published. The congregations, meanwhile, proceeded with their work, and doctrine and reform were taken in hand together as before. The decrees on the Eucharist were taken up at the point where they had been left in 1552. Communion in both kinds, and the communion of children, remained to be considered. The Articles of Reform dealt with diocesan and parochial administration, and the question of the residence of bishops was again raised. Simonetta endeavoured to avoid a declaration on the subject, but to this the Council would not consent, and on March 11, 1562, its discussion was begun by the General Congregation. The Council was unanimous as to the necessity of residence. The only disagreement was as to its being jure divino or merely lege ecclesiastica. This indirectly raised the question of the limits of papal authority, and the controversy soon became heated. The legates were not agreed as to the attitude they should adopt. Simonetta opposed any concession on the subject, while the Cardinal of Mantua and Seripando hesitated. At length, on April 20, the legates put the question to the vote. Sixty-six voted for the divine nature of the obligation of residence, while seventy-one either rejected it absolutely, or voted for remitting the question to the Pope. The result was not altogether pleasing to the curial party. Only a minority had voted for a direct negative on the subject. Simonetta wrote secret letters to Rome, accusing his colleagues of betraying the interests of the Holy See by precipitately putting the matter to the vote. The whole council was now in a state of confusion. The Cardinal of Mantua and Seripando ceased to feel sure of their ground. The papal letters to the legates changed their tone. Borromeo urged Simonetta to oppose any action of his colleagues which would be hurtful to the interests of the Holy See. The recall of the Cardinal of Mantua was seriously considered at Rome. Everything stood still while frequent letters were exchanged between the legates and Rome. The French ambassador profanely remarked, that the council was not free, as the Holy Spirit came to Trent in the courier's bag from Rome. To add to the difficulties of the legates, on June 2 a dispatch arrived from Rome, ordering the council to be definitely declared a continuation. Philip II had insisted on this, and the Pope had had to give way. 
but no sooner had the news arrived than the French and imperial ambassadors declared that they and the prelates of their respective countries would take no further part in the council if this were done. There was nothing for the legates to do but to temporize, in spite of the distinct orders of the Pope, and on June 6 the twentieth session was held, merely to be prorogued. Meanwhile, the general congregation continued the discussion of the decrees on the Eucharist, and here the question of communion in both kinds caused further trouble. A cross-division of parties arose, Spain and Italy against France and Germany. The imperial ambassadors allowed themselves to be outwitted by the legates. The consideration of Ferdinand's libel of reformation was deferred, and the council occupied itself with matters of purely secondary importance. The legates knew well how to follow Borromeo's advice and to gain il beneficio del tempo. Pius IV, meanwhile, hesitated. He gave way to the legates on the point of the continuation, and left the logic of facts to demonstrate its reality. He mollified Philip as best he could. With regard to the obligation of residence, nothing was done. After the vote of April 20, the legates had referred it to the Pope, and rumours reached Trent that Pius had declared it to be jure divino, but this was not confirmed. The curia came to no decision. It was unwise to run counter to the opinion of the great majority of the Catholic world in the matter, and the question was left in suspense. To show the zeal of the papacy, three bulls were published at the end of May, reforming the apostolic chamber, the penitentiary, and the chancery, and meanwhile the council marked time. So hopeless did the situation appear that the Pope even contemplated the transference of the council to an Italian town and a complete breach with the non-Italian nations. So strong an opposition, however, showed itself to the mere suggestion that the idea had to be abandoned, and other means were adopted to bring the council to a more reasonable frame of mind. Carlo Visconti, afterwards Bishop of Ventimiglia, the Pope's confidential agent at Trent, worked unceasingly to increase the papal influence in the council. The old methods were pursued with the Italian episcopate. When a bishop arrived at Trent, Visconti consulted with the legates as to whether he should receive payment for his services or not. Those who could not be reached by pensions were not always proof against the hope of promotion in the church. When these methods failed, threats were sometimes effective. The few independent bishops underwent the most outrageous provocations, and too easily lost heart. They gave up the struggle before it was half begun. The papal diplomacy was completely successful, and Philip was persuaded to order the Spanish bishops to let the question of the divine obligation of residence drop for a while. Pius made matters smoother by taking the hint from Visconti 
to treat the Cardinal of Mantua with more consideration, and flattered many of the bishops of the opposition with complimentary letters. Simonetta was warned not to show excessive zeal, and he and the Cardinal of Mantua were publicly reconciled. End of section 70 Recording by Tom Denham